This episode of the Internal Comms Podcast is brought to you by Acid Test, AB's unique and powerful tool for aligning organisations around a common cause. Now, we all know communication does not equal understanding. If it did, well, our jobs would be a lot easier. The acid test of internal communication is whether there is shared understanding. Is the goal clear? Are we all pulling in the same direction? Do we share the same priorities, the same purpose? Acid test is a powerful tool that reveals knowledge gaps inside organisations. Its unique and proven methodology gives you the insight and information you need to drive performance by creating deeper understanding and alignment. Now, listeners, you know how fond I am of asking open, probing questions that hopefully reveal fresh and genuine insight. Acid Test is not a tick box survey. Instead, the method is a message. Simply taking part in acid tests makes employees feel heard, understood and valued. Visit abcom.co.uk forward slash acid test to find out more. Download a PDF to discuss with your team and arrange an informal call to discuss acid test with me and my AB colleagues. So that address again for you, abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash acid test. Now is the time to take a privileged peek inside the mind of your organisation by asking the questions that matter. Acid test, a communications audit without the autocomplete. Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Listeners, I'm recording this on Wednesday the 4th of November 2020, and it's hard to imagine anyone anywhere in the world remaining untouched by this global pandemic, which according to the World Health Organization has now claimed 1.2 million lives. Certainly for those of us working in internal communication, 2020 has been a year like no other as we seek to keep colleagues informed, connected and above all safe. And as we help our leaders steer a course through all this disruption and uncertainty. I know from speaking with many IC pros that you've been thrown into the spotlight Your chief executive or your chief of staff now has you on speed dial. Your plans for 2020 have long been discarded and you're now faced with a new set of challenges to solve at speed that no one, or at least very few of us, foresaw. Amid all this turmoil, it's not surprising that some of us are feeling a degree of anxiety and self-doubt which may explain why, when I was invited to speak about imposter syndrome earlier this year, hundreds of communicators joined the call. Imposter syndrome is that nagging feeling you will be found out at any moment as a fraud or a phony, 
that your accomplishments have been a fluke. Any success you have achieved, just a bit of good luck. Research suggests that those of us in creative professions are more likely to suffer from imposter syndrome. And even if you don't suffer from it yourself, those around you might. And as a result, they'll be engaging in self-limiting behavior that comes at a cost to themselves and your organization as a whole. So to guide us through imposter syndrome, I turn to an expert. Dr. Valerie Young is known internationally as an authority on the subject. She is the author of The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. She regularly speaks at corporations and universities, sharing her practical advice with thousands worldwide. Now, if you're a man, don't be put off by the title of her book. Valerie says that it's clear from the research, men suffer from imposter feelings too. So in this episode, Valerie explains where these feelings come from and why you can't share your way out of them. We talk about reframing failure, the link between our thoughts and our feelings And towards the end of this discussion, we explore the notion of designing our work around our lives rather than the opposite, which sadly entraps too many of us. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Valerie Young. So Valerie, I thought maybe we could start with a definition of imposter syndrome. What's your favorite way of describing this syndrome? Well, basically, it comes down to this notion that kind of despite evidence of our accomplishments or abilities, Katie, that we are somehow not, in fact, as bright, capable, competent, talented, qualified as other people seem to think that we are, uh, and therefore that we are are fooling people. So in other words, the kind of thing that rolls around in our head is, well, sure, I'm successful or sure, I did it, but I could explain all that. You know, we, we, we dismiss or minimize our accomplishments as, as luck or timing, computer error, or, oh, they said the podcast was great, but that's just because they like me, that kind <laughs> <Yes>. of thing. <laughs> yes, I'm very familiar with all of those things that go around your head. So if we go back to the beginning, how did your interest in this whole syndrome begin? Well, it's actually, it was very personal for me. I was a graduate student. I was a doctoral student. I was probably about, I don't know, 23, 24 years old. And someone brought in a paper by Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes. Those are the two psychologists who first coined the term, the imposter phenomenon, as it is really more accurately known. It's not a psychologically diagnosable syndrome, but it got popularly referred to that out in the out in the out in the popular culture. So I'm sitting in class and someone brings in this paper and and starts reading and says, look what they found, that all these, you know, capable people thought that they were fooling folks and they were going to be found out. And I just sat there, Katie, nodding my head like a bobblehead dog, and <laughs> oh my God, that's me. And I looked around the room and all the other graduate students were nodding their heads. So the story I like to tell is we decided to get into a little imposter support group. We started meeting after class, talking about being intellectual frauds, how we're fooling all of our professors. And everything went great for about three weeks. And that's about the time I started to have this nagging sense that even though everyone else was 
saying they were an imposter. It's like, I knew I was the only real imposter. So I was like a super imposter. So actually, at the time, I was studying something else. My, my focus at the time, this was in the early um, 1980s, was white racism and leading workshops for people on white people to understand individual racism, cultural racism, institutional racism. Uh, but I became so fascinated by this topic that I, I changed my whole focus and I decided to look more broadly at women's kind of self-limiting attitudes and behaviors that might lead to feel like feeling like an imposter. Because at that time, Katie, they thought that imposters phenomena was something unique to women, right. very quickly determined that there are a lot of men who also feel that way. But that was the prevailing notion at the time. So that's why I decided to focus on women. There's one line in your book, which I really liked, which was something like, countless books promise to reveal the secrets of success. This isn't one of them. You're already successful. You just don't own it. Is imposter syndrome more likely to be suffered by people who are actually, ironically, quite successful? Well, I think the more, quote unquote, successful you are, you just feel like you're fooling more people on a higher right. level. Yes. You know, there was... Um, a study out of the UK that found 80% of CEOs and 82% of managing directors said they sometimes feel like they're, uh, you know, struggling in their role uh, and that they're kind of in, in over their head. They're out of their depth. You know, that said, I actually, I have to say, I hate the title of my book, The Secret <laughs> Thoughts of Successful Women. And the reason I hate it is two things. It leaves men out. And there are men who, many who painfully experience these feelings, but also, when you see the term successful, you think the head of a company or the prime minister or president of a country, you know, someone who's, you know, extremely successful. When in reality, it could be someone who's trying to get their art into a gallery or they're writing children's books or just started their small business or they're a first, first year student at a, at a university. So it's really essentially people, you have to be achieving something or trying to achieve something to feel have something to feel fraudulent about yes but but there's many ways to define success and clearly men do feel it as well but but less presumably less men feel it would that be fair and I don't I've got no idea and probably a, a whole podcast in itself to talk about whether that's nature or nurture I don't know yeah. if you've got a view on that oh yeah I, I have a view <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, some studies really find very little difference Katie other studies find you know more like 50 percent of let's say women uh, in medical school and this one study you know feel like imposters about a quarter of men you know so there's I think as a if we can genderalize yes. women as a group are more likely to have imposter feelings than men as a group. Um, you know, but again, there are a lot of men who do feel this way, and there there are reasons. I mean, you know, we, we don't exist in a vacuum. Uh, we didn't grow up uh, in, in a vacuum, and so I think whenever you're on the receiving end of, of cultural or social stereotypes about competence or intellect, and that doesn't just apply to women, by the way, then there's more of that kind of pressure to represent your entire group, mm. especially if you're one of the few or the first one or the only one you know, in, in a workplace or in in your field or the first person to do something. So, not surprisingly, uh, Michelle Obama. Uh, was in the UK last fall, and she spoke to a group of schoolgirls, I think in North London, yes, uh, and talked about her own imposter feelings. And, and the internet kind of erupted, like, "Oh my God, Michelle Obama feels like an imposter. 
how could that be? Uh, and I wrote a, a blog post called Unpacking Michelle Obama's Imposter Syndrome. And, and the main point is not how could she feel this way, but how could she not? Yes. You know, first generation to go to college. That's a group that's also more susceptible. She was underestimated by her teachers. She had a, a guidance counselor in high school who told her she wasn't Princeton material. She was very accomplished in her own right before she became the first lady uh, in the United States. But let's face it, she had a really good connection. Yes. <laughs> I mean, she wouldn't be first lady with, without marrying you know, the future former president, which is, I'm sure that's not lost on her. Uh, but she's also a first, you know, so there is um, enormous pressure to kind of represent her entire race in this in this context. Yes, uh, yes. I mean, there's a there's a wonderful another one, so many wonderful lines in your book. But there's one line that really stuck with me, and it's something like, you know, if you're selling yourself short, it might well be because, in effect, the world is selling you short. In other reasons, as you've just described, there's probably good reasons for imposter syndrome. It hasn't come out of nowhere. It's because, for whatever reason, your group, your demographic has been sold short. There's limiting factors and perception put on the group that you belong to. That's basically what where it comes from, or, or where it's a lot of it's likely to come from. That's one. That certainly that that is one place. There was a, a study I found. I mean, there's so much research, hundreds of studies on, on unconscious bias. But I remember listening to one on on the radio, and they played a man delivering a, a short venture capital pitch, right, trying to get funding for his business, and then they played played a woman making the exact same pitch. It. I heard it differently, and it was the, the exact same words. Wow. And in that study, the men were much more likely to get the funding than, than the women, you know, again, in that study. And there's many, many studies like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there is that kind of social reality. Again, whenever you belong to any group, it could be somebody with a disability. It's like that. Mm. You feel like you have to be like super disabled person, you know, to, to be yeah. seen um, at, as the same. So that's, you know, a reality. I also think that men handle imposter feelings differently. Again, not everyone, but as a group. There's some you know, research to suggest that the, the solution that men see, they see it as kind of a positive uh, because it makes them work harder. Right. But I think for women, it, we're more likely to pull back, not necessarily uh, work harder. I also think men as a group grow up as boys learning how to wing it. Yes. A, a little bit more, right? And to see it as a skill set. Yes. To be able to kind of, you know, fly by the seat of your pants and kind of figure it out as you go along, which is a really good skill to have because you we often go into a new situation as women and we think we need to know 150%. Yes. When in reality yes. you're being brought in because of your capacity, not that you've done it have 3 degrees and done it for 20 years. Yes, absolutely. And it was so, it amused me greatly when I was asked to speak at an event not that long ago about imposter syndrome. And I thought, oh, after 30 years of work and all these coaching clients and all the rest of it, I should know something about it. But I spent a good week going back to the original paper you've just mentioned, reading all about it, writing about it on LinkedIn to get my thoughts in order. And no one expected me to be an expert, but I had to do all that prep. And I thought, Katie, you are just manifesting imposter syndrome behavior because you couldn't just go up and just 
you know, talk from experience. So all that prep that we put in um, sometimes, will you talk about self-sabotage, which I think is one stage further than that, that self-limiting behavior that almost subconsciously we're sabotaging ourselves? Is that, I've heard you say that, would that be fair? Absolutely. But let me let me reframe your experience. So yes, on the one hand, and only you know for sure if you're over preparing and overworking, because that is one uh, coping and protecting mechanism. The sense that, well, sure, I was successful, but only because I have to work harder than everyone else, right? I'm not as intelligent as other folks. Um, but self sabotage is, is another coping and protecting strategy. So these are all unconscious, of course, but it could be um, showing up late for an important meeting or a, a presentation or a job interview. It could be job hopping or, uh, you know, for students, uh, particularly, you know, kind of graduate students, they keep changing their, their focus of their, their research and never quite, you know, kind of get to it. Uh, it could be alcohol or substance abuse. And you don't have to be, you know, a raging alcoholic, but having that extra glass of wine, you know, or cocktail the night before you really need to be, you know, your best these are all small ways that we might sabotage our success. You know, a woman came up to me, I think it was in Canada and said, um, she had this aha moment. She had, she just started her coaching practice or some practice and she was meeting a client and she gave the person the wrong directions like twice in a row. Wow. And they like, didn't (laughs) having trouble meeting up. And she realized like, gee, what was that about? (laughs) Cause she was scared. I'm interested. I know you, you're asked to speak at a lot of organizations. And is the reason for that, that there are tangible um, weaknesses and damage that can be done inside an organization if the culture is encouraging imposter syndrome? And I suppose within that, there's the assumption that cultures can somehow encourage that imposter syndrome. I mean, is have you seen those kinds of cultures? Would that be fair? Yeah, there are certain organizational cultures that fuel self-doubt. It could be, I, I was speaking at Stanford University and, and all it said up on my slide was, uh, you know, I was going through the list of perfectly good reasons why you might feel like a fraud. And one of them was you, you're, you're, you know, working in a culture that fuels self-doubt. And he raised his hand. He said, what if you're in a culture where there's a lot of shaming? Wow. And I said, are you in medicine? <laughs> he said, yes. So, Cause oh that was kind of the model. They're trying to change that in medical education, but that's the model of shaming someone for not knowing information. Wow. Um, if you, you know, uh, come into a very prestigious law firm, you know, you're in a highly competitive environment where, you know, you know, they kind of were picking the best and the brightest out of law school to go there. That's another um, example. Universities. Oh, my God. You know, the, the only study that I'm aware of, Katie, where a higher percentage of men than women identified with imposter feelings was a uh, study conducted with college professors. And, and I do a lot of faculty development sessions at university as well for that reason, because there are ways that academic culture, you know, causes self-doubt, not just in students, but also in, in faculty. You know, I think whenever you're in a very highly educated environment, there's that emphasis on being, quote unquote, smart mm. uh, and this kind of culture of comparison. But I would say there, there's there's consequences, even if you have a, a very, you know, welcoming kind of organizational culture, you know, or, or culture is not an issue. There's still consequences because these behaviors, whether it's 
kind of, I, I, I call it flying under the radar, right? That's mm. one coping mechanism, right? You don't speak up, you don't ask questions, you don't share ideas, you don't go for assignments or promotions you're perfectly qualified for. Uh, procrastination is another one, never starting or finishing the degree, the book, the paper, the painting, uh, as you said, self-sabotage, um, overworking, over-preparing. All of these things have costs, not just to the individual. Well, let me just say first, we get something out of it, right? We do these things because we're trying to take care of ourselves. We're trying to do the best we can to avoid being found out and manage the anxiety of feeling like an imposter. So, so you want to step back and say, what is this pattern helping me get? Was helping me avoid or protect me from you know, disappointment, humiliation, failure, embarrassment. You know, if I work crazy hard, I'm probably going to be more successful. I mean, that's the reality. Mm. Uh, but always at a cost, right? We we pay a price for the protection that we get from our pattern, and that's kind of a model that's in my book from from Jerry Weinstein, who who is retired, but he was at University of Massachusetts uh, where I went to school. So, but those same behaviors have costs for organizations. If you've got 10, 15, 20% or more of your employees chronically procrastinating, mm. uh, not bringing their full, you know, achieving their full potential, burning out from over-preparing, overworking, especially if they're over-preparing on things that just don't matter, you know, that aren't important, but they're spending unnecessary amounts of time on them or sabotaging, you know, all of those have cost to the organization as well. I've also heard you say that it can be a particular problem inside more creative professions. Um, in accountancy, for example, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a right and a wrong. You know, there's a two plus two, and that's the answer. In more creative fields, you're more open, I suppose, to criticism um, because it's not always absolutely obvious whether you've done something right or wrong. It's somebody right. else's opinion sure. that you've got to, you know, that, that matters there. Is, is that true? Absolutely. There are certain fields that are more susceptible. Um, uh, People in STEM fields is one, science, technology, medicine, but also creative fields, which makes sense when you think about it. You're being judged by subjective standards, by people whose job title is professional critic. And you're only as good as your last design or performance or whatever, you know, the creation and so you're always having to kind of prove yourself in a way that is not you know, required in, in other professions. And mm. that's why you see so many writers and, and actors, you know, and from Tom Hanks to Kate Winslet to you know, Tina Fey, uh, on and on, you know, Maya Angelou, who've talked about imposter feelings. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard Maya Angelou say, you know, after X number of books, I'm still waiting <laughs> for them to find me out, which is just incredible that so many successful women feel that way and men. So what can we do about it? How do we tackle our feelings of being an imposter? I've heard you say that you can't share your way out of imposter syndrome. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, you know, talking about it, it's an incredibly useful and important first step, right? To give voice to these kind of nebulous feelings of fraudulence. Just finding out that there's a name for the feeling. I mean, for me, that was incredibly liberating. You know, oh my God, there's a name for this and other people feel this way. And so it it is important to talk about it. I invite people in organizations to talk about it, especially at a senior level, but not in that confessional way, like, oh my God, I felt like such an imposter, Katie, right? But in a, in a more offhanded, like, oh, huge imposter moment in that client meeting, you know, that kind of thing. But the problem with only focusing on talking is that 
a lot of people get mired in it. And they've spent literally years talking, whether it's to their therapist or their spouse or partner and you know, friends. Oh, my God, I, I, it's going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. And their friends, oh, no, no, it's going to be great. Oh, no, no, you know, back and forth. And there's actually research that finds that adolescents who, it's called co-ruminating, adolescents who dwell on negative thoughts and feelings with their friends actually experience higher levels of anxiety and depression. Wow. Which makes sense because you're kind of mired in it. Uh, yes. Now, gir- adolescent girls are more likely to do that because how females manage stress is by talking. Yes. But they found that the teenage boys who did that, they also experienced higher levels of anxiety and depression. So it's a great first step. But again, you can't share your way out of, out of it. The, the example I, t- I use with people is sometimes with my friends, we'll, we'll talk about how fat we feel. You know, women <laughs> like to you know, have that conversation. Oh, you too. Oh, my God. You know, but, you know, we never feel any thinner after that conversation. <laughs> No, that's a very good analogy. That's an excellent analogy. Now, you've got an entire chapter in your book about responding to failure, mistakes and criticism, which I absolutely, I mean, I dived into it. I loved it. And I recognised myself all the way through it. So what are some of the mistakes we make about our mistakes? I think the biggest mistake we make about mistakes is thinking we can avoid them. Right. And also feeling shame. See, that's the thing is people who feel like imposters experience shame when they fall short. So, you know, if if you're a perfectionist, you know, 99 out of 100 will evoke shame. Making a presentation and sitting down and realizing you forgot to make some minor point, you know, well, you you will beat yourself up endlessly. So it's, it's not, you know, none of us get to avoid setbacks, mistakes, and so on. It's how you handle them that really matter. And the point I always want to make to people is, I want to be really clear. You could be crushingly uh, disappointed if it didn't go well. You blew the big presentation. You know, the the client hated your your design, so you didn't get the the job, but not ashamed. Right. I mean, the only time you feel shame is if you didn't really try. You didn't prepare because obviously a certain amount of preparation obviously is important if you're going to interview or something. Or if you procrastinated so long on whatever the job was that you know, it showed up in your results, that, then mm. shame on you. Mm-hmm. So it's really about reframing how you're seeing that failure and maybe not even calling it failure, but calling it. I mean, I remember you and I were talking before we came on air and you said something like, you know, well, if I repeat myself, I make a slip up, I'm just going to call it a learning exercise. It's a teaching moment. So you don't even think about it as a mistake, which I think is, a, to be fair, I think is a pretty tough thing to do. Can you give examples of some of those reframing? Oh, oh absolutely. You know, I was speaking to, I think, like 400 healthcare executives in Orlando, Florida, you know, big stage, and I started coughing. And I had to step to the side and take a drink of water and come back. And I, you know, took my time. I, you know, I went over, had a drink of water, came back. And I, and I said, how many of you would be mortified right now? if this happened to you and people raised their hand. I said, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> and then I laughed. I said, it's not that I don't care. Would I rather not cough? Absolutely. But I have it in perspective. No one stormed out of the room. So I am not listening to this coughing speaker one more second, right? I mean, no one, it didn't show up in the evaluation. Well, she was good, but she coughed. You know, it's like, these are like human things and we have to become more resilient, laugh them off a little bit more. 
you know, Katie, people think that success is this kind of straight line, you know, trajectory going up. In reality, it's like peaks and valleys. You know, your listeners might want to Google Princeton professor failure CV. <laughs> He's a tenured Princeton professor. Not easy to get that gig. No. He posted his very prestigious CV, but he also posted his quote unquote failure CV. The universities that where he didn't get a job, the publications that um, rejected his his work, the grants he didn't get, all down the line, and it kind of rocked the academic world, because again, we 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 <laughs> we have this idea of success just go you know constant, but when in reality it's like ups and downs and setbacks, and it's how you deal with it that really matter. Yeah, and as you say, I suppose also. If if it if it all comes very easy, then you're not learning anything new along the way. I mean, I always have this thing about you know you don't want to do 30, a thirty year career and have the same year repeated thirty times. You 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 want a fresh challenge each time. But to do that, you're going to have to try something you've never tried before. Chances are, the first time you do it, you're not going to be very good at it. So you've almost to be successful, you've almost got to I suppose accept a degree of failure. It's inevitable. Yeah, and to accept, you know, what you're describing is kind of a learning curve. I mean, the first time you do anything, it's, I mean, let me be clear. There are some people who like knock it out of the park the first time, right? Who mm. nail that, that kind of, often that kind of one hit wonder, right? Their first album, you know, is, is, is the best, or they write a bestseller right out of the gate. But they are extreme exception. You know, the first time you put on a conference is not going to be good as the the second year that you put on the same conference. So, the, you know, the, the more the more you speak, the better speaker you'll be. The more you write, the better writer you'll be. The more you do art, the better artist you'll be. You know, we, we have to start seeing ourselves as being more of, of a work um, in progress. And a lot of people give up quickly if they're not immediately successful. And I, when I was a kid, my my uncle Buddy he he played the guitar and the mandolin and the violin and a few other string instruments. So I wanted him to teach me how to play the guitar. Well, that lasted for about ten minutes because <laughs> I didn't want to learn how to play the guitar. Right. I wanted to play the guitar. <laughs> yes. It takes a lot of work to make it look easy. Absolutely, isn't that true? <laughs> Yeah, someone says, oh, someone said to me the other day, oh, you just, you just, you walk up on stage and you just say it like that. I said, yeah, it's taken me 30 years to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, I am a 30-year yeah, overnight success myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Imagine, I'm just imagining some people listening who might line manage people, maybe a big team, maybe a small team, it really doesn't matter. If they suspect they've got a team member that might be suffering a little bit from imposter syndrome, as you say, I love that phrase, flying, flying below the radar, not giving all of themselves as they should be. How do you help manage someone? Can you manage someone out of imposter syndrome? Yeah, I mean, I think um, naming it, I mean, you don't want to start diagnosing people because um, maybe they're just a, an introvert. Um, and so, you, you, you know, it's a different, you want to try to pull, draw them out no matter what the reason is that they're holding back. And it could be in a meeting because there's always people who dominate meetings uh, and some people aren't speaking up to say, I'd like to hear from everyone. You know, let's go around the room. It'd be kind of interesting sometimes to have some flip charts on the wall. I know we're doing this virtually now, 
where every person is a different color, you know, who's commenting their ideas. And then you start seeing, oh, <laughs> like we're not hearing much from this person or that person is dominating. But again, yes. I would go back to self-disclosing to, to um, I wouldn't call this big meeting, but certainly you can just, you know, matter of fact, but hey, has anybody heard of this thing called imposter syndrome? I just heard this podcast. I thought it was very interesting. And, you know, some of the more successful people on the planet ha- have felt it. And, and, but it's important to self-disclose if you have, but, but I also want to say if you like the only, you know, person of color or the only woman, you know, I mean, it is more risky to say, hey, everybody, guess what? I feel like an imposter. Yes. You want to make sure they really understand, you know, what it is and that they're not really imposters yeah. before you do that. But absolutely. I mean, I think that whether they're overworking, because uh, it could be the other extreme, you know, overpreparing, overworking. I used to be in uh, marketing communications in a Fortune 200 company. And there was this woman in the uh, we worked with off in another department, and she was always telling us how you know sending emails at you know three in the morning and letting us know oh I was here all weekend I was here till ten o'clock at night, and she thought she was impressing people, but she wasn't. She was it was a, a turnoff. People were like, well, what what's her problem? Like, why does she have to do this? Uh, and we it, it wasn't impressive. It backfired. So it, it, yeah. could, it could be either of those things. Yeah, I mean, that can just simply look like very bad time management. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. So in researching this subject, I also came across the opposite. I don't know if it truly is the opposite. It felt like the opposite, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Would would that be fair? I mean, is that the opposite? And for me, it sounded far worse than having imposter syndrome. Yeah, you know, I wrote about um, a a similar notion, kind of irrational self-confidence syndrome (laughs) in my book, right? So if 70% of people at one time or another have had these feelings, what's up with the other 30? So some part of that 30 has what you accurately name as the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's named after Professor Dunning at Cornell University, who through hundreds of studies, this has been studied you know, repeatedly, found that the most confident student who was just sure they were going to ace the exam, they're the smartest guy in the room they would consistently do worse than the person who was convinced they were going to be, it was going to be terrible. They were going to fail. They weren't prepared. They would do the best. So, so what, what they concluded is people who don't know what they're doing, don't know that they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Or, Or they think they know way more than they really do, but they're incredibly confident in their lack of knowledge. But they, yes. Uh, yeah. Which is very interesting when you think about it, because the research shows, Katie, that in a leaderless group, people are more willing to follow the more confident person over the more competent person. Right. Which is kind of frightening when you think about it, right? Very so frightening. You sound like you know what you're talking about. You know what you're talking about. Let's go with the confident person. And I think a lot of us are focusing on becoming more and more competent, getting more certifications and degrees and experience. When perhaps what many of us should be focusing on is feeling uh, and projecting more confidence, even when we don't always feel it. It can that be done? Because I completely agree with you. But are there certain things you can be saying to yourself? I mean, there's that link, I suppose, between having the thought and then feeling something, which has taken me a a really long time to learn. I'm, I'm ashamed to say it, actually, but it really has. Is that the way to sound more confident, just to have a different thought running through your head? 
Oh, you have to have a different thought. I mean, you could walk on stage and be thinking to yourself, I'm going to die. It's going to be terrible. <laughs> you know? Or, you know, it, it's the kind of, your body doesn't know the difference between fear and excitement. Right. Right. Sweaty palms, nervous stomach, dry throat. So I would much rather, whether it's going to a job interview or a meeting or step up to the podium and say to myself, you know, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited. But you don't have to believe it. No. Okay. Right. Uh, you, but you have to keep going regardless of how you feel. You know, what everybody wants is to stop feeling like an imposter, but that's not how it works. Feelings are the last to change. Right. You have to, the only way to stop feeling like an imposter is to stop thinking like an imposter and then you know, do that thing, jump in, trusting that you can kind of figure it out as you go. And if you don't know, you can pick up the phone and call someone. You, there's all these resources around where you can figure out things that you don't already know. I was just wondering what your prediction might be about the future. Because I was thinking on one hand, obviously, there's your book, there's your work, there's your talks. We're all talking a lot more about imposter syndrome and getting to grips with it. On the other hand, the world seems a scarier place than ever. We're all working really hard. We're struggling with work-life balance, all of that going on. What's your prediction for the future? Is imposter syndrome unfortunately here to stay in quite a big way? Or could we be getting to grips with it? The term was coined in 1978. It's always surprising to me when someone says, I've never heard of that. And a lot of people have never heard of it. It's hard to say because, you know, we talked about certain groups who are more vulnerable, um, whether it's the, the profession you're in or the organizational culture or situational factors, like, you know, being a student. But also working alone is one of those susceptible groups. So if you are you know, self-employed and then add to that self-employed artist or whatever it might be, you know, you're also going to be more susceptible. And you know, so many people in white collar professions you know, have that, you know, fortunately, when you think about that luxury to, to be working from home right now because of the, the, the COVID pandemic. I think on the positive side is that more organizations are addressing it. It's certainly being talked about more you know, at, at universities and at corporations. I speak to a lot of um, corporations. Uh, and some of them are actually starting to look at, um, I, I've suggested they look at, like, what would it be like to create an imposter-free culture? Wow. What mm. would have to be um, different to have an environment? And it doesn't mean it may ever go away, because, again, there's different factors that come into play. You know, I think uh, actors or you know writers, you're always going to have a little bit of that imposter mm-hmm. feeling. And so the, the the key to me is not to cure it and have it go away. It's to have kind of the information and the insight and the tools. So when you have a normal imposter moment, you can talk yourself down faster. So I'm thinking about that normal moment for a lot of listeners. And the reason why I wanted to reach out to you is that in the middle of this pandemic, My listeners are people that have to craft messages for workforces. They have to engage leaders and what to say next, how much information to give. And a lot of them have said to me, I didn't even realize my CEO knew my name, but now he's got me on speed dial and he's ringing me every time the lockdown advice changes or the security advice, you know, whatever is about COVID is changing. What should be going through somebody's head when they see the CEO or their senior, senior, senior manager come up on their phone and they think they're going to ask for my advice again? What do I really know? What should what should really be going through their head a moment like that? How can they reframe that moment? Well, I mean, understand that it is stressful. 
Mm. <laughs> I was once left, it's a long story, but when I was in marketing communications, we had this huge offsite sales meeting and the president of the division, which essentially the CEO of a huge division, I was left alone in the room with him. He gave a talk and then he looked at me and said, what do you think? <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, right? And I, I, I gave him some feedback that he included, he, he changed his talk. Right. But it was, <laughs> I, I said, well, I just, let me, let me give you the context of what will come before you, Larry, and you might want to include that or whatever, and, you know, and soften it. And he did. So just acknowledge that everybody has that little bit of anxiety. So don't yes. think, oh, it's just you, right? So do less personalizing and more contextualizing, mm. Um, mm. first of all. Um, hopefully they have, you know, that kind of mindset that like, I mean, we're all, especially during this time and crafting messages and all that, right. We're all, it's all new to yes. everyone. And, and all we can do is give it our best shot uh, and take advantages of resources, whether it's your podcast or other people in the field and say, okay, so what are other people doing? It's not cheating. It's it's being really wise and smart to yes. seek out advice and information and perspective and you know, templates and what's working and what's not. Yeah, that's a very good point. We do live in a world now where that the touch of a button at our fingertips is so much help and guidance. Um, oh, and you know, you- when somebody says to me, I don't know how, it's like, oh my, it's like, it's like fingernails on a, a blackboard. <laughs> that's still an expression. It's like, you know, with the internet, please, like all you have to type in how to, right? And it is like right there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's almost no excuse for it. And I think going back to your point earlier about failure, it's okay. No one expects you to have all the answers off pat immediately. You know, the first step and the only step you need is to to give it a go, to open your mouth and say what you think. And and probably the walls are not going to come tumbling down, actually. You know, and it's how, it's how you, what you bring to it as well. You know, we've all been in a meeting or, or a class and we didn't understand or we wanted to ask a question. We didn't, though, because we didn't want to, quote unquote, sound stupid. And then someone else asks our question or shares our <laughs> idea and, and they go, oh, that's brilliant. And you're like, oh, like, well, that was my idea. The the point that I make is that it's not about knowing everything. It's not about everything coming easily, quickly, uh, but it's about not knowing with confidence. It's about being the person in the room who confidently raised your hands. Excuse me, I don't understand. Yes. Uh, Could you clarify that? Do you mean this or do you mean that? Other people be relieved, but you have to Mm. really project this notion that, of course, I'm entitled to not understand, right? Yeah. And to ask those questions. Yeah, yeah. So Valerie, if we've just got a little bit of time before the hour is up, I'd love to ask you those quick fire questions, if I may. What would most surprise people about Dr. Valerie Young? Uh, probably that I'm an, uh, I'm an introvert. I'm, I'm over on, on that cusp and I can do extrovert. Right. But, you know, so people often think, oh, I couldn't get up on a stage and speak in front of 3000 people. And at one time, you know, I couldn't either, you know, you kind of build to that, but I'm essentially an introvert, which again, might surprise some people. You also, there's, there's a lovely story at the back of your book about how you actually felt quite a lot of imposter syndrome trying to get that book deal. And there was so much irony in that moment. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, I I had an incredible agent who kind of found me based on an article that was out there. And so she contacted me and 
she got me interviews with like eight of the biggest publishing houses in New York City. So I went down to New York and we, and it was a two days, we had these meetings. So, you know, I'm up looking at the skyline of New York, you know, at the top floor in these huge, gorgeous conference rooms, like 12 people would file in all, you know, <laughs> bombarding me with questions. And, and, and again, like, I, like what I said in the book, the irony was not lost on me, right? <laughs> that I'm pitching this book on imposter syndrome and I'm feeling, you know, like an imposter. But, but here's also what happened is that, and she had said to me, her name was Elizabeth, and she said, you know, you'll get better as you go along. And, and so the reframe there was, I've never done this before. Right. I've never pitched a book. Why would I know how? In fact, I did get better a- as it went along. And by day two, I was like, they should be so lucky yeah. as to have my book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't do that either. I'm trying something new. I sometimes forget to remind myself that I've never done it before. So no, it's no surprise. You know, it's no surprise I'm feeling these these thoughts of kind of impostery thoughts. Um, just out of curiosity, do you still create mood boards i know there's a mood board at the back of your book do you still find that a useful technique i don't i you know i haven't for a long time but i think it's a good idea i'm visual right so i like to see visual things so this was a a board that i created with different images and sayings to kind of keep me motivated and on track and writing my book and focusing on the goal and Oprah was right in the middle because I wanted to be on Oprah. She ended her, what, 25-year run, like, you know, three months before my book came out. (laughs) And I was like, oh, you know. And and the point that I make in the book is that, you know, was it a long shot that I would get on Oprah? Absolutely. But was it possible? Yes. What's the best piece of careers advice you've ever been given? You know, I think two things. And one I already said, which I got from my faculty advisor, um, who was also a speaker and consultant, Bailey Jackson. He's the one who said to me, it takes a lot of work to make it look easy. Mm-hmm. You know, and I never uh, forgot that. He said, our job is to make it look easy, standing up here, you know, leading a workshop on racism or whatever, whatever it might be. The other one, I actually gave myself. You know, I came up with this kind of concept that I used to, I had another business called changingcourse.com for 25 years. I just sold it. And that was a business that was all about helping people find, you know, ways to make a living without a job think outside the job box. And so the, the process that I would teach people is what I called life first, work second approach to career planning. In other words, what happens is a lot of people choose a career and then they kind of, they, they're like, oh, I'm in commuter traffic, uh, sitting under fluorescent lights in a cubicle, right? This isn't, because nobody would have said, if somebody said to you, what do you want your, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Nobody would say, well, I'd like some, you know, micromanaging boss and maybe, you know, cubicle. You know, like nobody would say that, right? But then you end up there. So the life first works like an approach says basically step back and think about what do you want your life to look like first, then come up with ways to generate income that's going to allow you to have as much of that life as possible. Do you want to work from home or do you need to be around other people? Do you want to work from a little cafe? Do you want to spend half the year working in, you know, Italy and the other half in, you know, Australia, uh, you know, or in the mountains or the ocean? Do you want to work with your hand, your heart, your body? You know, it's like, like what's the physical environment? What time do you want to I used to say to clients, what time do you want to get up in the morning? And one guy said to me, Does it have to be the morning? And I was like, <laughs> I like oh, good point. So now so then I just said, What time do you want to Get up, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and to think about the, kind of that pace and that flow. And so start there. And then when you start thinking about career options, you, you can see, is it going to pass the life test? 
Mm. Uh, and if it's not, is there a way to tweak it to make it so that it, it does? Don't just accept it at face value. It's not going to work. Is there another way to do that work in a way that would fit more? Oh, gosh, I love that so much. Because we don't, I'm just thinking about this, we don't kind of design our lives like that, do we? You're absolutely right. We get asked from a very young age, what do you want to be And what, when you grow up? And what do you want to be is not about where do you want to live, how do you want to feel, what do you want to see out the window? It's a, about what you want to do for a living, which is, a, which is just a very small part of being. <laughs> right. Nobody yeah. says, what do you want your life to look like? Because I think some people would make some very different decisions. You know, I'd have clients who are, they would be an engineer or a pharmacist or an attorney or whatever it might be. And they were miserable. And I'd say, well, why did you decide to become, you know, an accountant or whatever? And they'd say, well, when I was growing up, everyone said I was good at, right? you know, numbers or people or whatever. Um, but did they love it? Not necessarily. So don't just go with something that you're good at. We can become good at any number of things. Mm, mm. Do you think actually because of the pandemic and people looking at their lives through a slightly different lens now, maybe because they are spending more time at home or they're not doing the commute, do you foresee actually quite a few people deciding to redesign their lives? Could that be what's going to happen in 2021, do you think? Yeah, I do think for people in white collar professions that that will be um... – yeah, a lot of people will. I mean, there's some uncertainty right now in terms of you know the, all the economies around the world. Yes. So uh, there may be uh, some more tentativeness, but I do think that there is more self-reflection. Yes. I mean, I know, I mean, I, I, I usually am traveling for my speaking engagements. I put my suitcase in my attic, you know, <laughs> which I've n- never done. I don't plan to travel for, for a while. So um, I had this little window myself in March and April during when the shutdown of just not having that much work. And, and I was like, oh, this is what it feels like. <laughs> and now all I want to do is like paint my patio furniture, you know? And <laughs> I found that very satisfying. Oh, oh, you're, you're, you're speaking to someone who knows exactly what you mean. <laughs> Although the opposite, I interviewed someone for the podcast who is in his 90s and he was living in, he lives in New York and he said the opposite. He said, I've just seen what retirement looks like and he was still working in his 90s uh, and I didn't like the look of it at all. So it can yeah. kind of have the opposite effect as well, Absolutely. It, I guess. Yeah. So, Valerie, we give you at the end, this is borrowed from the Tim Ferriss show, we give you a billboard. It's kind of a metaphorical billboard for millions to see and on that you can write any message you like. So what message would you like on your billboard? I think it would be that everyone loses when bright people play small. Ah, so that's coming back to your flying under the radar problem. Playing yeah, small. and there's many ways that that manifests. Um, of just you know not scaling your business, you know, not bringing your art into a gallery, not, n- never starting. I mean, there's many ways that that manifests. Never starting or finishing, even you know, overworking, over preparing can can fall into that category. But yeah, you know, and I say that because. The, the the point I often make to people is this is not all about you. That mm. when you you know when we fail to bring our you know kind of full gifts out into the world and and our greatest desires, there's an impact on other people. And, and I think I told this in the book, but when I was working on my dissertation, I had conducted all these interviews. I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of you know transcriptions, and now I had to figure out okay, what does all this mean? 
And I was procrastinating. I had the cleanest house in Northampton, Massachusetts, by the way, when I was supposed <laughs> to be writing my dissertation. Uh, and my friend Rita wrote me a letter, pre-email, wrote a letter, put an envelope, put a stamp on it, mailed it, and said, Valerie, you have to finish because you're learning things that could help a lot of people. And that was, I was like, oh my God, how selfish am I? I mean, people are waiting for me. I have to hurry. <laughs> I found that yeah. very motivating for me to get out of my own way and to realize that I need to do whatever it is because there's some benefit to someone else somewhere in the world. Wow. You know, a massive penny has just dropped for me. So as um, this, obviously, my listeners are internal communicators and in the comms profession, we've been described as the sort of Cinderella comms function. You know, we don't get the attention, we don't necessarily get the budget, we don't get the kudos, just being internal communicators. But you've just made the point that actually we could owe it to our profession, (laughs) not just ourselves to get out of our way, because we could be perceived that way simply by our own actions. And we could do a lot actually for our entire profession if we if a different thought ran through our heads just before we got onto that podium or took that call. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Valerie, for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. If you found this episode useful, I'd be extremely grateful if you could rate it on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, because I'm told that's the very best way of making this show more discoverable for other IC pros out there. If you do this, I will be immensely grateful. Thank you. To find out more about the books and the other resources that Valerie and I mentioned, including that CV of failures from Princeton professor Joannis Haushofer, head over to the show notes at abcom, that's abcom.co.uk forward slash podcasts, and you'll find the show notes there and all our previous episodes. While you're on our site, you might like to sign up for our monthly newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. It'll give you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of internal comms. Next up, I'm putting a measurement expert in the hot seat to tease out exactly how we should be researching and evaluating our work. So if the phrase KPI dashboard has you running for the hills, hit that subscribe button now. (laughs) All that remains is to say thank you. Thank you for choosing the Internal Comms podcast. And until we meet again, lovely listeners, stay safe and well. And remember, it's what's inside that counts.